Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 19 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, June the 10th. And Leon, we've got Laura McManus as our main interview this week. That's right. Laura McManus is a human rights specialist and she works with uh, Konica Minolta. And she's going to be talking to us all about how human rights and ethics comes into the supply chain. Yeah, ethics. Companies need ethics because companies these days have got to pay more attention to customers. Absolutely. And it's a global economy. And so it's very, very important. And after that, we're going to have a great chat with economist Saul Leslake. And we're going to try to make sense of Australia's GDP figures, which showed the economy was booming in terms of exports, but our incomes are going backwards. That's right. And wages have been going backwards for years. So anyway, first of all, let's have a chat with Laura McManus. Laura McManus, you're a, a ethical supply chain consultant with Konica Minolta in Australia. Tell us about the ethical supply chain, how good and how bad it might be. Okay, well, thank you firstly, Gary and Leon, um, for having me. So yeah, I work in ethical sourcing at Konica Minolta. And I guess in terms of answering how good and bad it might be, we should start with first, first thinking about um, what at least for Konica Minolta, what the supply chain would look like. So for us, uh, we need to look at a global level. So we in Australia are effectively the sales arm of our parent company, Konica Minolta Inc., based out of Tokyo. Um, So for us, ethical sourcing is divided then both into uh, the machines that come out of Tokyo and then also uh, what we as a business in Australia can look at. So um, at a global level, uh, we're quite well down the path on the journey. Um, So we have been a member of some international initiatives like the Electronic Industry Citizenship Coalition um, and also a member of the United Nations um, Global Compact for a couple of years and uh, based on the principles around human rights and labour um, contained in, in, in both of those international mechanisms, um, it's guided the company on their journey. So we um, have quite a robust uh, supplier code of conduct and I guess supplier management and audit system um, with good visibility over um, the supply chains um, of, the, of the machines. And then what um, the exciting thing for me and the Australian business is what we're trying to do now is cascade those policies um, at a local level and look into our own areas um, of spend and purchase. So now this would include working conditions in the uh, supplier factories as well as sourcing uh, components, things like that, wouldn't it? Yeah, correct. So if we're thinking um, about kind of a a printing machine, that would um, be kind of all the components um, that go into it. So if you think of an electronic supply chain, for example, that would start um, kind of at the raw raw material or raw mineral extraction level. um, And then it kind of goes into a process of um, smeltering and component configuration. And then all of those pieces come together at a factory level. So kind of it's a very highly complex process. So you would, um, and then obviously the supply chains are quite complicated and deep. So, so companies have visibility generally over the first tier of supply chains, and the challenge um, not only for Konica but I guess other companies in the industry is to see well how can we cascade that down the supply chain to to more of the more minute um, component manufacturing down to the the raw minerals. How does it work down at the minute level? 
so for example if we if we start down to to the the raw mineral extraction so i mean i guess the biggest issue for the industry um would be um what we call conflict minerals so um they're they're minerals um coming out of a particular part of the world generally around the democratic democratic republic of congo um and surroundings where there's kind of a, a few different human rights violations um in in the in the extraction of those um and then also uh, it can be linked to the profits of that industry um, go into uh, kind of fueling conf- um, conflict in the region. But I guess more broadly, um, if we're talking about um, what type of work issues might arise at those levels, it's anything from forced labour, child labour, um, often over ex- overtime and, and excessive working, and also uh, there's risks, um, I guess, at a at the, the component level and the manufacturing level with uh, migrant workers' rights who are, who are often brought into these, these factories to work. Does it come down to the stage where the company actually would have to talk to the supplier about uh, what's, what's happening and what, how to fix things up? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the, um, when we talk about this, this broad piece of work, which can also, um, I guess, that the movement, if you will, is called business and human rights. And I think there's, there's a recognition um, in, in the movement that no one can really go at it alone and that it has to be um, a collaborative effort. So, um, for example, just talking to what, to what Conic is doing, I mean, at least in Australia, we are, we're, we're effectively a sales arm, so we aren't in control of any manufacturing. Um, so we really see our role um, and the work we're doing as kind of a either a supplier education and, and influencing piece. So it's just about um, having the conversation at, at this stage, having the conversation, raising awareness, um, asking the right types of questions, doing due diligence, and then um, perhaps you've you then in that process identify um, a, a supplier or a particular component um, that might be at, at greater risk, and then you can um, delve down a bit deeper. Do you find, uh, does Conica find that, uh, there's, you know, the customers ask about um, supply, the ethical supply chain. Is it, is it a sale decider? I'm, I'm not sure if it is a sale decider yet as much as I would love it to be and I certainly think it's got the potential um, to be but yeah you definitely find that um, it's becoming more of an issue for, for our customers and our clients so they um, are so yeah we're in an interesting position because effectively I talk about suppliers but we are also seen by our customers as the supplier so we become that first tier for many of our customers so what's important to them is they're asking us the question and then we are kind of cascading those um, slowly down our own supply chain. So um, it's no environmental or sustainability that kind of has a lot more, I guess, um, a lot more questions being asked. But I think in the coming years we'll see more and more customers asking questions about um, more the ethical sourcing and, and human rights side of supply chains. And this would also include um, recovery of... Uh component parts or something like that from machines that have run their life uh, and that also would need to be done ethically wouldn't it not dumping the stuff correct absolutely so it's not just about um, kind of the extraction and processing but also about the entire life cycle of the product so again I think um, considering the environmental side of a life cycle product um, uh, most companies and and certainly most um, large companies I I guess are well on their way to to having needing to either tick the box or going beyond compliance on that end Um, 
but I mean in terms of of electronics electronic supply chains, I mean there's certainly the, the kind of breaking down those component materials. Um, that, that, I mean there's also instances where there, there can be um, kind of work exploitation in in that sector as well. So it's you're right, it's not just about the processing, but also about the life cycle and what happens to the product afterwards. So I mean we don't um, manage that, but of course. Of course, we have suppliers who also manage that, so it's about asking questions in that direction as well. Do you, in the time you've been doing this work, Laura, mm. uh, do you think that Australian corporates are more concerned about the ethical side of things? Yeah, so it's um, really a growing piece of work. So I guess even um, taking a step back and, and prior to, to coming on board at Konica, I've been working uh, more in the NGO space, so doing um, kind of large research pieces about, around modern slavery and then focusing on on the forced labour and, and migrant worker um, component. And even, um, even just two years ago, there was more hesitation from companies to engage. It was, it was, um, yeah, there was still distance. But I think even in the past two years, um, you've, you've seen more engagement, um, not only in Australia but but globally. And I think there's a few few reasons around that. At least globally, um, there's been some some new legislation in place. So the US particularly has quite advanced legislation now around the conflict minerals um, that I talked to before, and then also now in federal government contracts of of the states. They have um, quite strict compliance rules around anti-human trafficking in the supply chain. So um, trafficking for forced labour um, is one kind of component of, of forced labour. There can be human trafficking um, in that space. And then so on the legislation side as well, the UK um, last year enacted what they call the Modern Slavery Act, and that has quite um, – they they're not stringent on a company to comply, but they require companies over a certain threshold, which is £36 million, to at least disclose the effort they're taking to ensure they, they use the language to ensure there's no slavery in their supply chains. Um, so while companies can do nothing, they also need to declare that they're doing nothing, which I guess is, is not a great look. So it kind of entices companies um, to do something. In Australia, we're not, that, we're not there yet with the legislation, but I think... Um, especially multinationals and, and larger Australian corporations are following these trends and, and it's peaking on their radar as well. Uh, obviously what's driving a lot of this is legislation. Is there anything else mm. that's driving this trend besides legislation? Yeah, well, I would hope um, kind of the moral compass is driving the trend, um, but I guess also from, from a business case perspective, um, I mean, there's kind of a few reasons why it also also makes like a, a business sense. So if you have greater transparency over supply chains, for example, um, you can minimise risk of supply chain disruptions, um, kind of improve work, kind of, I guess, business theory and, and some research proves as well that improved worker conditions in production um, lead to greater production efficiencies, which I then guess improve both quality quality and also um, the efficiency of the process. Um, I would say the media is also becoming um, a little more sophisticated in they report how they report around this. So there's been a bit of um, kind of brand reputation um, kind of risk and trying to manage that risk. Um, and then on the other hand, it's it's only if you if you do the good work, it also gives you another story to tell. Um, so I think there's a few things driving it. Um, and, and that will only increase over time. 
Laura McManus, um, thank you very much for your time and uh, interesting insight. Thank you very much, Laura. Thanks for having me. I guess it's sort of um, business practice 101 when you think about it, that if there's one thing that annoys people, and the banks know about this, is uh, a bit of crookedness on That's the right. site. Indeed. And, you know, banks are on the nose basically because of what's gone on. And now Saul Eslake and the GDP. Last week's GDP figures had showed a 3.1% growth driven by exports, but at the same time, uh, uh, income went backwards. Yes, that's right. Uh, first thing to acknowledge is that these are good figures when taken as they usually are as a measure of economic growth. Of the 54 countries that I track who have reported their March quarter growth figures, Australia's is exceeded by only 13 other countries, and most of those are Asian or Latin American emerging economies, which traditionally have stronger growth than industrialized economies like Australia. Australia's 3.1% growth over the year to the March quarter is stronger than any other developed economy that's reported so far, apart from Spain, Sweden, and Iceland, all of which are still recovering from very severe recessions they suffered in the aftermath of the financial crisis six or seven years ago. But uh, that said, if you dig into the number that was reported uh, on the first day of June, uh, there are some other aspects of it that aren't quite as encouraging. In particular, as you mentioned, growth in income was much weaker than implied by the 3.1% growth in real GDP. Real GDP measures the volume of goods and services that is produced in Australia. And as such, it abstracts from changes in prices, including changes in prices of the things that we trade with the rest of the world. And up until 2011, the prices of the things that Australia sold to the rest of the world rose very strongly, largely as a result of the impact of very strong demand from China on the prices of things like iron ore and coal and more recently natural gas. Whereas at the same time, the prices of many of the things that Australia imports from the rest of the world, particularly manufactured goods, fell largely as a result of the rapid growth in China's supply to the world economy of many of those manufactured goods. So what economists call Australia's terms of trade, the ratio of the prices we get for our exports to the prices we pay for our imports, moved very much in our favour. Glenn Stevens, the governor of the Reserve Bank, was at that time fond of saying that in the early 2000s, Australians could get the equivalent of about 2,500 flat screen TVs, which we import, for every tonne or every shipload of iron ore that left Caratha or Port Hedland. Whereas by 2011, when commodity prices peaked, Australia was getting the equivalent of about 34,000 flat screen TVs for every shipload of iron ore that we sent out. Uh, since September 2011, prices of our key export commodities have been falling. And according to Glenn Stevens' methodology, we're probably only getting about 7,000 flat screen TVs now for every shipload of iron ore that we send out. The point is that in calculating real gross domestic product, all of these changes in the prices of the items we trade with the rest of the world are ignored, or they pretend that they haven't happened. And that does mean in a country like us, 
Australia that an important source of fluctuations in our national income is obscured. There is, however, an alternative measure called real gross domestic income, which puts back into the calculation the gains or losses that accrue to Australia as a nation from these big swings in the prices of the things that we export and import. And what that shows is that over the year to the March quarter, uh, real gross domestic income rose by just 0.6%. That's a lot less than the increase in real gross domestic product. In fact, if you look over the last 15 years, uh, those differences are really quite striking. Between September 2002, when the commodities boom first began in September 2011, real GDP grew at an annual rate of 3% per annum, but real gross domestic income, which captures the effects of changes in prices of exports and imports rose at an annual rate of 4.6% per annum. That is half as much again as the growth rate of real GDP. Since then, since the September quarter 2011, when commodity prices peaked, real GDP growth has averaged 2.7% per annum, which isn't much less than what had occurred over the previous nine years. But the growth rate of real gross domestic income has been just 0.6% per annum, or less than a quarter of the growth rate of real GDP, and fully four percentage points below the growth rate that it had recorded between September 02 and September 2011. And in many ways, it's this real gross domestic income that drives corporate profits. It is reflected in the wages that workers get. And because the tax system taxes income rather than the volume of production, it's also a key driver of the government's taxation revenue and hence its budgetary position. And this very dramatic turnaround in the growth rate of real gross domestic income from 4.5% per annum over the nine years to mid-2011 to just 0.6% per annum over the roughly five years since since then is probably the single most important reason why John Howard and Peter Costello had tax revenue coming out their ears during their term in office and briefly the Rudd-Gillard government had some of that as well. But Since 2011, Wayne Swan, Joe Hockey and now Scott Morrison have encountered so much difficulty meeting their promises to return the budget to surplus. And of course, that would also explain why uh, inflation has been falling as well. It's certainly a big part of it that with much slower growth in incomes, people's purchasing power is much less. This is a global phenomenon, of course. Uh, Income growth in most of the Western world and increasingly in Asia as well has been quite slow since the onset of the financial crisis. Australia was to some extent insulated by that from that by the mining boom when it was in full swing. But now that the mining boom has receded, Australia's more exposed to some of these global forces than we had been earlier, and we're starting to feel the effects of low inflation of both wages and prices. And, uh, of course, and all of that is putting pressure on the Reserve Bank, which has uh, kept interest rates on hold, but uh, all the, the market is betting that it will cut in uh, again in August. Uh, That's right. Uh, Market opinion wasn't really expecting the Reserve Bank to cut rates again at its meeting in June, and they didn't. Uh, the, The statement immediately following 
June's Reserve Bank board meeting by the Governor Glenn Stevens gave no hint of any further intention to cut rates, as they sometimes do if that is still a distinct possibility. It would seem that the Reserve Bank believes that the rate cut they instituted at the beginning of May was a sufficient response to the surprisingly low March quarter inflation numbers, which were in turn supported after the event by similarly low data for movements in Australian average wages. And I guess any further rate cut would be contingent on the June quarter inflation figures being even lower than the March quarter ones were. But Glenn Stevens seemed to indicate in his statement after the June meeting of the Reserve Bank Board that they're now keeping an eye on uh, what he described as risk events in the global economy. And I think what he was referring to there was specifically the Brexit referendum in the UK towards the end of this month, I think on June the 23rd, and of course the US presidential election running down to election day itself on the first Tuesday in November of this year. Now, both of those things could cause shocks to financial markets if the British people do decide to leave the European Union. That's certainly not what financial markets are expecting, so there could be some upheaval there. Down pressure on the British pound, potentially putting some indirect upward pressure on the Australian dollar. And of course, if Donald Trump becomes president of the United States, then given his highly protectionist agenda and his belligerent attitude to many of America's most important trading partners, uh, there's a very serious risk that those countries who hold very large quantities of US Treasury bonds will sell them, putting upward pressure on long-term US interest rates and downward pressure on the US dollar. That would in turn be reflected in upward pressure on the Australian dollar. And I think the Reserve Bank probably feels that it now should reserve the limited amount of firepower it has to cut interest rates further in the event that it has to deal with something like that. So, Liz, like, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure again, as always. Thanks, Leon. Well, what do you think, Leon? Well, I think uh, it raises the question of what's the GDP relevant, actually, if uh, if wages are going backwards. Well, yeah, that's right. And as Saul Lake says, you know, it, it's, it may be a measure, but it's not a good one. That's right. So, well, we'll see what as, as we go on. But uh, GDP will continue to be used by the politicians because maybe they understand it. Maybe. Now the news. Gary, first of all, unenthusiastic hiring and workforce dropouts resulted in weak hiring numbers in the US and it's reduced the life likelihood of a US Fed raising interest rates. Well, not in June, not in July, and uh, September's no sure bet either. While the US unemployment rate fell by 0.3 percentage points to 4.7% in May, employers added just 38 workers. That's the lowest monthly number since 2010. And that number defied expectations by economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal, which has them forecasting jobs growth of 158,000. And all of this is important for the Federal Open Market Committee, which will, in the middle of the month, assess conflicting signs of the state of the labor market when it holds a two-day policy meetings. And Federal Chair Janet Yellen appeared to rule out a June rate hike. July might be off the table. And as I said, September's no short bet either. A few weeks ago, Ms Yellen said the Fed was expected to raise its benchmark interest rate in the coming months. But in her speech on Monday to the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia, she omitted those words. And that suggested that the weaker than expected job numbers in the US was seeing the US Fed rethinking its plans for an immediate rate hike. And Ms Yellen said the latest jobs figures were, quote, concerning. It is indeed. And when you think about it, there's 
the election, the Trump, and even Hillary, who got two of the most unpopular presidential candidates in living memory. Well, yes, uh, as uh, certain readers uh, said uh, in The Guardian, it's either between a choice between the vampire or the buffoon. <laughs> Go for the vampire every time. That's right. So I would imagine the Fed will hold off at a rate hike till December after the US election. Anyway, the British pound has tumbled after three polls show growing support among British voters for leaving the European Union. And sterling hit a three-week low, falling against the US dollar and euro to $1.44 and €1.27. And this fall against the greenback is stark, given the US dollar has gone soft amid expectations the Fed will hold off against a rate rise. And the polls are showing more British voters are favouring a British exit or Brexit from the European Union. A YouGov poll has revealed that 45% of voters now favour a Brexit, with 41% opting to remain. An Observer opinion poll found the Brexit is at 43% to 40%, and a third poll from TNS showed support for leave at 43% against 41%. Historically, of course, British polls haven't been all that accurate. No, that's true. And I noticed Tony Blair over the week, uh, during the week, was saying that he was confident Britain would stay. Yeah, and I think they will, just as the Scots stayed in. Yeah, but still, it's it's uh, spooking markets. It's spooking currency traders because the pound is taking a, a nosedive. Yeah, but if you're holding pounds and breakfast breakfast thrown out, you'll make a profit. That's right. That's right. Now, um, the World Bank has cut its outlook for global growth as business spending sags in advanced economies, including the US, while commodity exporters in emerging markets are struggling to adjust to low prices. And world GDP will grow by 2.4%, according to the World Bank, and that's down from 2.9% estimated in January. In its semi-annual Global Economics Prospects report, it said growth will pick up to 2.8% in 2017. It says downside risks have become more pronounced since the start of the year, and there's a whole lot of challenges looming, including deteriorating conditions in commodity exporting economies, rising private sector debt in large emerging markets, and heightened policy and geopolitical uncertainties. Debt is everywhere, including here. That's right. Now, big news here, Gary, was that ASIC has formally launched legal proceedings against the National Australia Bank over its involvement in manipulating the bank bill swap reference rate, and the action makes NAB the third of the big four banks to be hit with action by ASIC. That's after ANZ and Westpac. And only the Commonwealth Bank has remained unscathed at this point. And ASIC says it's alleged that the NAB traded in a manner that was unconscionable and intended to create an artificial price for bank bills on 50 occasions from June the 8th, 2010 to December uh, 24, 2012. So more than two years. Yeah, you'd wonder why the banks are doing this sort of stuff or allowing this sort of stuff under the lap. Because if you look at technology's rise, banks are pretty well, you know, under threat. Electronic transfers, what do you want a bank for? That's right. That's right. So banks are, but anyway, the banks are now in the regulators' sights. Now, business confidence continues to deteriorate ahead of the federal election, according to the latest Dun & Bradstreet Business Expectations Survey. Uh, Looking ahead to the three-month period to 30th September 2016, the survey found that expectations of sales, profits, employment and capital investment nosedive to 10.7 points from the third, for the third quarter of 2016. That's down from 12.7 points for in the second quarter of 2016 and 17.6 points in the third quarter of 2015. And the actuals index fell to a two and a half year low of 4.1 points compared with 12.7 points last quarter. And that brings to an end three consecutive quarters of growth. And that's ahead of the federal election, Gary. Yeah, that, that's a worry. On the other hand, in a boost for the Turnbull government, now fighting for its life, consumer confidence has soared to a two and a half year high, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. And that index saw consumer confidence rising 3.2% in the week ending the 5th of June. And that more than offset the 2.2% decline of the previous week. And people now seem to be feeling 
feeling more confident about the state economy following last week's unexpected GDP figures showing GDP unexpectedly rising to 3.1%. At the same time, though, Gary, um, inflation continues to head south, according adding to the speculation that um, the Reserve Bank will at some stage cut interest rates in the next few months. And the Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge fell by 0.2% in May, and the result is Australia's inflation is now 1%, well below the Reserve Bank's target range of 2 to 3%. And with the cash rate where it is, the uh, Reserve Bank doesn't have much room to move. Well, yes, the Reserve Bank actually um, cut or kept interest rates on hold and uh, at 1.75%. But economists are tipping another rate cut and the market has actually priced in a two-thirds chance of a rate cut at the RBA's August meeting after the ABS delivers its second quarter inflation figures in July. And meanwhile, Australia's building activities stepped down a gear with more pain on the way. The performance of construction index dropped 4.1 points to 46.7 in May, slipping back below the 50-point level, separating expansion from contraction. Yeah, and if the deal done by the CFMEU about an 18% pay rise um, gets through, you'll see construction sagging still further. That's right, but you might see inflation going up. Well, you might. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts. An interesting PricewaterhouseCoopers study found that the world's biggest miners have squandered the benefits of a long resources boom and they wrote off the equivalent of 32% of capital expenditure since 2010. And according to PwC, which analysed the world's 40 biggest mining companies by market capitalisation, there was a collective US 190 99 billion of impairments booked between 2010 and 2015, and that represented a staggering 31.9% of the US $623 billion in capital expenditure deployed over the period. So they were just losing money. Yeah, that's right. Now, some interesting corporate news, Gary. Australian travel book booking company Webjet has announced it's entered into a binding agreement to buy the online Republic group of companies for 85 million New Zealand that's 79 million Aussie and in its statement to the market Webjet said online Republic had number one spot globally in online motorhome rental bookings and across Australia and New Zealand for online cruise bookings and the company also has a number two spot for online car rental bookings across uh, Australia and New Zealand. It's headquartered in New Zealand and um, online Republic has 140 staff in New Zealand, Australia, China and the Philippines and Webjet said the acquisition is going to expand the company's car rental and cruise office offering and it's going to allow it to expand the high growth motorhome rental market. Yep, well, New Zealand, well, both come to Australia and New Zealand, both popular. Now, online retail entrepreneur Ruslan Kogan uh, has revealed ambitious growth forecast for Kogan.com in its first year as a public company, which is, I mean, it's going to be floated soon. And Kogan, who will be entitled to sell part of his stake for 14 months after the $50 million initial public offering, is expecting earnings before interest tax appreciation amortization to jump. 138% to $6.9 million in 2017 and net profits to rise sixfold to $2.5 million. That's up from $0.4 million in 2016. And according to a Pathfinder prospectus sent to prospective investors last week, revenues are forecast to rise 19.9% to $241 million in 2017, gross margins to widen from 14.5% to 15.2%, and all of that's underpinned by growth in Kogan's travel and mobile operations and the expansion of its private label and third-party brands. Amazing success story, isn't it? Yeah, and and all of that came from uh, selling uh, electronic gear out of his bedroom. Amazing. Well, Mike Malone, that's where he started IINET in his bedroom. Interesting report from PricewaterhouseCoopers. It shows that television networks are set to lose advertising share over the next five years. The annual PwC Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook report forecasts that free-to-air TV share the advertising market is going to fall by 7% in 2000, by 2020 in the face of increased competition from streaming services and other media. Declines in TV 
audiences will see the free-to-air share of the ad market drop from 25.5% in 2015 to 18.5% by 2020. So that's big. And at the same time, PwC predicts the advertising market is actually going to grow from $14.86 billion in 2015 to $18.68 billion in 2020. And on the other hand, it forecasts a 5.8% compound annual growth for subscription TV, including uh, pay TV operator Foxtel and various low-margin subscription video on-demand services like Netflix, Stan and Presto. And by 2020, subscription uh, video services will have 20% of the consumer subscription TV market. And that's forecast increase as the level of internet TV, which is now 31%, rises. And the PwC forecast, plus report forecast, the Australian entertainment and media market will grow to $47.4 billion by 2020, driven by an annual... A compound annual growth of 4.1%, and internet advertising is going to boom. Video will grow at 27.8%, display 10%, classified 9.9%, and search 9%. And all up, internet advertising will have an annualised compound growth rate. Very healthy. Yeah, it is. Um, you wonder what sort of future it's got, though, because uh, the uh, software that zaps ads, and with video on demand becoming more and more popular, like iView and uh, various others in the free-to-air area, you wonder if advertising is effective well it's going to be a very interesting space but one thing for sure the print media is going backwards what five ten years there won't be a newspaper printed in the country i think that's quite likely i think that's quite likely and that's it for this week gary good leon and next week we've got a terrific interview with american coach beverly flaxington and in the meantime you can keep in touch with us on twitter at talking or on facebook take care and we'll talk to you next week